0: Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University and we are glad you're joining us here today. We air here on KTRL 90.5 FM every Sunday at noon and also streaming live on tarletonradio.com and we're also available on SoundCloud following the show that's On Politics with Eric Morrow uh, as well as wherever you download podcasts. So welcome to the show this week. Uh, We are very pleased to have have with us this week, uh, Dr. Brian Jones, a professor at the University of Texas in Austin. He holds the JJ uh, Pickle Regents Chair in Congressional Studies and has done a number of things, including receiving National Science Foundation grants uh, totaling over 2.6 million, publishing articles in the American Political Science Review, the Journal of Politics, and American Journal of Political Science, and Policy Studies Journal. Uh, He also has books which include Politics and the Architecture of Choice, published in 2001, Reconceiving Decision-Making in Democratic Politics, uh, published in 1994, both winners of the American Political Science Association uh, Political Psychology Section Robert Lane Award. Uh, Your expertise, uh, Dr. Jones, is in the area of of, of policy and, and focusing on Congress and so uh, this is a great time to have you on the show, especially with the transition we're seeing in government, as well as in, in what I wanted to focus a little bit today on uh, on the transition in the Senate, having the division we do and this focus on on power sharing or how things might move forward and in, in things working through the Senate. But first of all, welcome and thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Eric, and thank you so much for having me. Well, I just wanted to start out with all of that is uh, we've heard these discussions as soon as the uh, new Congress was seated and uh, we saw the elections turn out the way they did in Georgia and you had this 50-50 split between Democrats, Independents, and Republicans. Uh, These discussions uh, going on, or at least what what we heard of, uh, how they would move forward and how this would function, Uh, it's not as easy as the 50-50 with the vice president uh, casting the deciding vote in terms of how the Senate functions. And I don't know if you could just, you know, shed some light on that in terms of what, what this might mean uh, in terms of, of how the Senate might operate or kind of what goes on behind the scenes in terms of the, these uh, either discussions about how much power each party or what, what will be allowed, you know, to be to be done.
1: Yeah, I wish I were behind those closed doors so I could uh, hear what they're talking about. A couple of things. One, uh, the House of Representatives, because it's completely elected every time, every two years, Uh, just writes its own rules and the majority party adopts them. Now, they'll be a lot like they were the previous session, but there are no constraints on that. But the Senate only elects a third of its body each uh, two years. And therefore, it is a continuous body and has to change the rules uh, if it wants to do so. Otherwise, it's bound by the rules set the, the previous term. So the negotiations have to do with what the rules look like the next um, period. And if you leave the rules alone, it leaves uh, the, it could leave the minority party in charge of the committee chairs and so forth. That's why we're having this funny debate about why are the Republicans running the committee still? Well, they are because the rules haven't been changed. Now, make it clear the majority party, which is the Democrats because they have the vice president's vote in a tie, um, could do this anytime they want, but it's uh, a lot better if you negotiate with the minority party to get things done. And things are hard to get done in the Senate, harder than they probably should be. Uh, to be honest with you. And some of the rules are quirky and arcane. One is the filibuster. The filibuster, uh, as we, uh, we, um, well, we ought to talk about. And the filibuster is a mechanism to uh, make sure that uh, majorities can be stopped on legislation that the House itself, the Senate itself, things might be extinct It's overused now. It was not overused at the time it started, nor was it overused until well into the 70s. Um, Even later, I'm not sure what date exactly, we changed the rules there. But you had to, uh, before this, you had to actually talk a bill to death. The most famous filibuster was the 1957 Civil Rights Act, which was filibustered by a South Carolina senator Strom Thurmond, and the filibuster was broken by the good Texan, uh, Lyndon Johnson, who was majority leader of the Senate at the time. And I don't know how many hours Strom Thurmond talked, but he had a talk because um, Johnson had a majority of the votes in favor of the bill, and Strom Thurmond knew he couldn't stop it unless the whole Senate got bored of not doing anything and quit. Well, today, you actually hang up stick up your finger and say, I'm filibustering that. And the Senate basically has to come up with 60 votes to break that, that filibuster. That's become somewhat of a perversion. So what's happened, I know I'm going on and on about this, but it's important. Oh, please, I'll, I'll, please whatever, do, please do. Everybody's uh, eyes to glaze over. So <laughs> independently, uh, in in 19, these are stories that are going to come together, they had not promised. Um, Nixon was president in in the 70s and Nixon took a bunch of money that was supposed to be spent and didn't spend it. He called it impoundment. We call it impoundment. And he said, I'm not spending that money because it's wasteful. And when the House and the Senate, both run by Democrats, Nixon was a Republican, said, "Uh, wait, you can't do that. He said, yes, I can. And as a matter of fact, you, you don't even have a budget plan. I have to do a budget plan by the uh, by an act of Congress in 1920. Uh, and I do it. And the president has to do it. But the you just spend out whatever you want, add up the bill, and send it to the taxpayer. That was true. And the uh, decision about the impoundment was taken to the Supreme Court. And the Democrats, the Congress won. But they were so embarrassed, they passed the budget act. The Budget Act included something called reconciliation. Here's what it did: it said you got to produce a budget and it's got to balance at the end of the year. So they put some reconciliation project product in so that the spending and the budget would balance at the end of the year in case it's a little bit off. Now that reconciliation is now used to get around the filibuster. So you can write a reconciliation bill that includes all sorts of stuff as long as it has to do with money. The first time it was used to do that was by Reagan in 1981, and now it's used more frequently than we imagine. The last time it was used big time was for the tax cuts uh, that Tr- uh, President Trump got through in his first year in office. Um, so now we get to today. The rules are complicated. The filibuster is too much used. Uh, and so we're talking about using this reconciliation procedure, which is in law, so it's not going to be changed by the Senate rules. It's just going to be a big mess of a bill because of the way the rules are set up. So that's what they're negotiating about. How do we get this stuff to work? The filibuster can be ended by a majority vote anytime, time. And um, it's been limited by uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats, because you can't no longer can you filibuster nominations for the executive branch or for for, um, judges. And we know that from the big fight done last time. So basically the hangup is a rule made up by the Senate to slow down legislation. And these are kludges kludges, to get around those bills. That's what they're negotiating about, to get around these kinds of situations. And that's the most important thing for the listeners to know. This reconciliation project, uh, product uh, rule has been developed in a way that has stopped legislation. It's used to get around that legislation that's been stopped, so the Senate can get things done. I do not think that the Senate could get things done without such a, a, a procedure. Yeah. Sorry to be long-winded about that, but this a little history of, of how this went on and how we are now using a rule designed to balance budgets to oftentimes unbalance budgets, but that's okay. This has got stuff's got to be done.
0: Yeah yeah well and, and thank you for that. We have time to do that on this show thankfully and not the little uh, uh 30 or minute and a half clips, 30 second clips that you that you sometimes see on different things and to go with this in depth. And and I want as a follow-up question to that with this, you know, transition of power that we've seen which was uh on the, on the one hand uh, you know not um, uh, 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 it, the way it all happened was was so engaging just to see the the election and then the challenges that came after that but then that that january uh fifth election that that really set this scenario up but but we know when once a congress comes into session and now we've got a new presidential administration which we'll get to in a moment you know they're they're looking two years down the road to the next election because that next election can change the dynamics of power. So what, what goes on in a, in an environment like this where this negotiation is going on that, that has an eye toward that, because as one party does it to one, the other one could turn around and, 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 and try to, you know, change things to their benefit, which we know they're going to do. I mean, when you have power, you're, you're going to use it, but, but does that factor in at, at this point, when they're trying to look at uh, what they might be able to get done between now and the next election?
1: Oh, yeah, uh, very much so. And the parties differ quite a bit in what their um, priorities are. Uh, so uh, the rules matter there. And right now, uh, the key for Biden and the Democrats is how much can we get into this? Um, Uh, reconciliation bill and what it would want to do, I believe, and I can't prove this, that the reconciliation process, the way it's used now, ends up with us spending more money and doing less other stuff because of the filibuster. For example, um, there's a big push to get some of our voting laws uh, improved or something like immigration changed so it's more rational. Uh, And that can't be done because you're going to need 60 votes to do that. But you can spend money. Uh, So it's become the exact opposite of what it it was meant to be. So the rules actually steer what you can do in these kinds of systems. And it can be perverse. And I feel like uh, it has become perverse in many ways. If we didn't have the filibuster... Then we could, the Congress could do things on a majority vote that might not otherwise do. Now, if the other party comes in and wins uh, because they are um, not uh, favorable to the to the uh, the legislation, then they can reverse it. But does that work so badly? Just think of the Affordable Care Act, which the Republicans are very critical of. But when push comes to shove, on a majority vote, they could not get the votes to do it. I won, John McCain, so it suggests that people are going to be a lot more thoughtful about their votes when it gets down to that level. I think that block could have been modified sensibly. That's not what they wanted to do because they've been talking a lot in their campaign about uh, uh, changing it completely, but they didn't have even a majority to do that. So um, the rules probably need to be updated, but. it, it steers what we can do in, in, uh, in, in legislation. Not so in the House, they can pass whatever they want. Sometimes they run ramp over the minority party. Uh, but you can see how this, this works. As far as the rest of the session goes, we've got this big boulder hanging over the, the whole session, I think. And that's the July 6th invasion of the... Capital, which I think, as people think this out, they're going to like it less and less. And I think both parties are going to come to the conclusion that we have to have to stop some of this. But that's a different matter. It's just going to color the background. You're going to hear it in the in the ether almost, which is going to color how we end up doing legislation. Uh, finally, I want to note that it is not impossible to pass legislation in Congress with huge votes the COVID release bills were both carried by Republicans and supported by Democrats. This one is more controversial. It's not necessarily because the party's changed. It's because the situation is not quite the uh, same. We passed two other bills. I, I, I like to look at the centrist members of Congress to see, well, where's Congress going? And if people like Mitt Romney are saying, let's make this a little smaller, you got to take that seriously as a serious policy proposal. Maybe it needs to be bigger. I feel that way. But because somebody like Romney or Susan Collins says, "Well, maybe it's too big," I'll think it. I'd stop and take it out. Uh, and I think that's the way Congress ought to work. But sometimes the rules get in the way, which I think is my going to be my message today. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Well, so so one of the things that that comes to mind, and I I try to remind viewers. Or listeners, we're not. We're on the radio here, but I try to remind them that policy change and or adapting or or adding it doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, we've got this history going on, which you laid out for us in terms of some of the ways that that this works within the Senate. But it it, it before transitioning here to talk about some of the other policy uh, uh points of focus of the biden administration it, it seems like that what you're saying is it's it's much easier to uh to control things and and move some things in directions because of reconciliation and 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 spending than it is to make like you brought up immigration. I mean, here's an area that we've needed substantive policy change for. Uh, uh, I mean, some would say half a century. Some would say you know, uh, but 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 we can't get it done. And 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 I think that's a something that people uh, need to be aware of is sometimes the those significant challenges in this. And, and so kind of turning to the, the the Biden administration in terms of some of the things that they want to accomplish, what do you see are uh, uh, some of the challenges, even with that, that majority or with the the tie breaking vote that it's going going to be difficult uh, to try to accomplish that they are going to have to find some compromise somewhere, given the way that the Senate is uh, the makeup of the Senate is now.
1: Well, you mentioned one, immigration. I mean we've tried uh, the last immigration we uh, bill we passed was by President Reagan. And they tend to be, they, they tend to be cross party uh, for a variety of reasons, although there's some reason to believe that might be uh, disappearing to some extent. The reason is so immigration is fascinating to political scientists, as you know, Eric, because uh, we have uh, we have had traditionally two wings of each party. Uh, one wing supporting immigration, more immigration, more liberal immigration, the other wing um, being not so enthusiastic about it. So the Republicans had uh, more of the nativist Americans on one side, uh, uh, people who were suspicious of uh, of immigration and, and voted for the Republicans. And the business wing, which has tended to be much more sympathetic to immigration because needed workers, uh, for the, the uh, plants and so forth that they run. And the Democrats, similarly, labor was uh, usually not uh, particularly open to immigration, fearing loss of jobs. But uh, the so-called liberal wing, I guess, the reformist wing, I don't know what you call, uh, had been more sort of Statue of Liberty kind of or- orientation for immigration. And of course, we all know neither of those positions is really... Um, feasible, so you should be able to compromise. We can't, uh, for some reason, get this done. And now I think the parties have shifted a little bit. The Democrats are more open to immigration, the Republicans less so, so it may be harder. But nevertheless, we ought to be able to do it, and we shouldn't let the rules get in the way. Right now, we're going to have to come up with 60 votes to to, um, make a sensible immigration bill. That's a problem. Now, the other thing that happens in these cases is you give too much power to the executive because Congress can't get thing done. And both parties complain about it, but they don't see that the, the lack of action in Congress is part of the problem. So I think that's one area that uh, the Biden administration prioritizes. Got a lot of stuff going on right now. COVID relief is first, but there's a, um, other uh, immigration is certainly one uh the fear that we're going to do too much limitations in the right to vote uh, is is one thing that will drive the the, the Democrats' civil rights policy, because uh, blacks and Hispanics have become such an important they play such an important role in the civil in the uh, Democratic Party right now. Republicans have become more hostile to civil rights than they were in the past, which is not a good sign. Um, but they have, and uh, so these things are going to be hard to compromise against six votes because of the filibuster. There are a whole series of things that uh, uh, moderates in the center, Mitt Romney could probably cut a deal with, I don't know Joe Manchin tomorrow, and and uh, it'd be pretty good policy. But that's not what we can get because of the filibuster.
0: So so when we look at these initiatives that the Biden administration is going to be putting forward, uh, and, and, you know, as you said, COVID is the the, the main focus right now in, in addressing that both economically as well as the, the public health side of it. Um, when we look back over how the the, the Senate and, and Congress, is, as in general, uh, how, how it's functioned, um, in, in relationship to an administration and you mentioned about pre, the increase in presidential power and I, I think back to president obama saying the power of the pen and the phone and we've had other analogies like that have been said you know in the use of executive orders and and things like that what do you what do you see are some of the significant issues i mean you've touched on a few of these but the 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 things that we, really need to be tackled in terms of the function of Congress and in relationship to the presidency uh, in terms of public policy, in terms of being able to engage with these very significant issues. Because uh, I'll just, you know, give you an example here when we teach American government. Uh, it, it's not just about teaching what has happened and here how this functions, but it's it's also looking at the stability of our representative democracy and what are some of the things that may represent kind of cracks or threats, you know, to long term, to, to being able to address uh, uh, crises and be able to uh, uh, critical issues and, and have government li- have some effectiveness in doing that. And and to me, this strikes me as, as, as one of those things that the the function of Congress and this, this whole area of policy and, and the rules that... That, that are involved in the the challenges seem to me to be one of those very critical uh, issues, and but yet in the in the political realm we just don't see the 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 ability to to tackle some of these things, and and so that uh, I think that presents us with a challenge and a dilemma uh, that may that, that may have made this public health crisis more uh, challenging, but it may make other things as well. I I know we're not about predicting the future, but we are about seeing what's happening over time and trying to say, okay, here, here are some things we really need to address. Do you, do you see some specific things there that, that, that need to be addressed?
1: Um, Well, I think that that the, the last few years, maybe 10 years, I don't know. We've been, directed, uh, let me go back and start the discussion this way. So, one of the things that Condoleezza Rice said, who was national security advisor for George Bush before she became Secretary of State George W. Bush, um, after 9-11 was, um, we just didn't see this coming. Like, uh, nobody saw this coming, she said. Yet there were all sorts of indications that there were terrorist plots, uh, and and she also said, who could who could think of people running planes into towers? Well, as a matter of fact, in Malaysia, in um, there, there's a big towers, these big similar towers in in um, Singapore, and the. there were some Philippine terrorists that were getting airplanes to run, run, had a similar plot to run into those towers. And it was a police woman in in Manila that caught them and they, they deflected it. So there were all sorts of memos coming through to Condoleezza's desk, but she ignored them because she thought that the big threats were from the Soviets. So they underestimated the threats from these private terrorists and overestimated the threats from Russia at the time, led the Obama administration to underestimate uh, later on the, the threats from Russia, but that's another story. So we're always missing stuff because we're not thinking about it. This is very important. It's been a major theme in the research I do because you can only prioritize a limited number of items on your agenda at home, on Harvard State's agenda, are the whole federal government's agenda. And we miss a lot of stuff that way. And I think that's as important as getting deadlocked uh, on stuff. One of the things we have terribly missed in this country is the level of, um, of white terrorists, uh, white terrorism uh, and right-wing white terrorism in this country. We underestimated it because it looked like us, as far as I can figure out. I don't know, I underestimated it. Um, it was there in a much more hostile form than I ever imagined until January the 6th when it came out big time in which these people let a coup on the uh, American government. Until we face up to some of these problems, we're not going to be able to solve the cracks in our democracy. My own feeling is most Americans would never agree with something like that. And as a matter of fact, you can see that's happening. But enough do that it's a problem for us to face. And I don't know what the answers are. I do know the first thing is to send some people to jail for breaking into the, the citadel of our democracy. But we have to have both parties agreeing on it, and all the rest of sensible Americans agree Some people are not going to. Uh, but we face it, face something like 9/11, uh, except it's us doing it people like you and me um, that look like us. And I think that's the one of the things we've got to get more used to, de- dealing with these kind of uh, threats more openly. Now, again, we got to watch ourselves because people have freedom of speech and freedom of action, freedom of mobility. So we can't interfere with that. Thank God for our constitution for those things too. But I think some of the things we need to address are hidden and we don't like to talk about. Uh, now, there's a second part where parties disagree and have differences, uh, and we still haven't got around to working on it. Uh, because, again, we can only work on so many things at once. The Biden administration has a lot of things it wants to do right now, but it's not going to get them all done uh, because of these uh, the inability to do everything. As far as I'm concerned, I'm worried about our voting structure in democracy. Some people don't trust our voting because you know, they think there uh, was corruption in the election. I'm not so concerned about that. I couldn't believe this is as clean an election as it was. We have really helped our election system over time, but it's still gonna be watched and people have to have confidence in it. Uh, what I'm more worried about is we'll take, try to take too many people out of voting. And that's of, of concern. Both parties ought to benefit from having as many people to vote as they can get that are legitimate that can get out there because that's what we want. We actually kind of want elections like the last one because at high turnout, high interest, the parties got to distinguish themselves. There was not a clear outcome. The president lost big time, Uh, but uh, down balance, the Republicans did very well. Uh, So we have to, and until the two Georgia votes, I assumed that the Republicans would keep the Senate and we'd have divided governments. So these sort of structural things are very important and I don't know that we can restore overnight our tr- our cracks as you put it in our democracy but I sure hope so but I think that's the the country's number one and certainly us as political scientists to restore some confidence that our government works. I think it does work but it's got some issues it has to deal with. And let's remember too we're a federal system and we have some decentralization and while I'm not so happy about our Failure to adopt public health measures in many places in this country. Still, for the most part, our federalism system still works pretty well. Looks clunky right now, but uh, I like the diversity of it.
0: Oh, very good. Well, well, one final question I just I have for you as we we kind of look ahead at the. Uh, uh, these challenges and we look at, at Congress functioning and, and so on. You said, you know, the Biden administration has a lot uh, that they want to try to accomplish. We know that the political dynamics of this can change so rapidly. I mean, we've seen that just in a matter of months here uh, right. from the transition of one administration and, w- and one election. Um, and besides the the, the pandemic uh, and and the, the, like we said, the public health and economic aspects of that, um, you mentioned voting what 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 do you see are, are are really the the policy areas that need the the most significant attention early on? If you see this that they've got a, a, a majority vote through the Senate, I mean they're they're going to be able to accomplish some things, but but we know how fast. I mean this this we already what in a few months people will start looking at who's going to be running in primaries in in twenty uh, uh, what 2022 uh, in order to uh, run for that next elect midterm election so it's really a short window here and uh, with your you know policy background and focus on 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 Congress there, what do you think can be accomplished or what do you think should be front and center?
1: yeah you know, it's, it's it's like we I wish we had the best window. Um, half a year into a presidency because we'll figure out what we can do and where where we have cl- and we can fix policy. And most of the time that we're working on stuff, we're trying to fix policy. Uh, I think the pandemic is going to uh, weigh heavily on us for the world for a while. Uh, and the reason is it's done such damage to the economy. And uh, I don't see the economy fully recovering. I'd love to go out to the uh, to the rest of us in Austin. Uh, but as an older guy, I, I don't dare do it. Uh, and uh, even when we get vaccine, uh, the vaccinations, I'm not sure we're gonna be able to, to do what we wanna do because the virus is mutating pretty quickly. But I think we're gonna be dominated by economic questions and pandemic questions and they're intertwined in ways that I hadn't imagined before. Uh, there are other areas, though, that can be cleaned up almost uh, because there's so much agreement on them between the two parties. I think foreign policy is an area where I would be surprised if major differences break out. There will be some, uh, but they won't be. Imp- I think everybody understands in foreign policy, the Russians are a pain, but, and what they did to breaking into the... The, the massive cyber uh, break-in uh, a few months ago is concerning both Republican and Democrats. Everybody understands the, the uh, difficulties in dealing with China right now. Um, and I think when you see I, the new Secretary of State, he was talking to Lindsey Graham, the head of the foreign, <laughs> temporary head of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Senate, temporary because he was still in, uh, in office because of the... Uh, the rules, uh, they agreed. It's almost like a, a friendly fraternity party or something. So I think in foreign policy, probably we can get more done than we think. We cannot ignore climate change. It is happening. And this maybe goes to Texas very deeply. Texas is an energy state, but it's not just an oil state. We don't want Texas to turn out like West Virginia coal. I don't think we will, but we have so many different sources that could be used here. From wave energy, which has not been explored, to, to we are the leading wind state. That's not because our politicians are windy uh, in the country. The sunshine shines all the time west of well, west of where you are, uh, and uh, so we got so many ways this can be uh, be addressed and. Climate change is going to be a problem and problem pretty quickly, and, and Biden is on Biden's list. I think we can get both parties involved on that, but it, it won't be as easy as the as the foreign policy areas might be. Um, but I think there can be some. I think I expect a major climate bill, but it'll look like it'll have to look. It'll have to be attract Republican moderates. they will just have to, because our our uh, our uh, filibuster. This is a big, robust agenda that we're facing right now. And it's not just because the parties change, but because there are a lot of problems in the world. And we have to learn how to address them a little better than we did in the last four years, or maybe even longer, because we had petty fights. And uh, we have big issues, and I think we can get unified around those big issues. I think we're coming to that point in climate change. I think we're actually more unified on civil rights than we act like. Um, because most people agree on, uh, on the bill of rights for everybody, so I'm not unoptimistic. But I just think the challenges are huge, and I hope all the listeners out there will put it roll up their sleeves and try to try to help because we can do a lot together. Americans always have.
0: Well, thank you for those uh, words of encouragement, and that's why we do this show is to try to get more in-depth information uh, on these types of issues that really impact all of us. And sometimes we just don't know the complexity or actually uh, what's happening. And so I want to thank you. This has been uh, Dr. Brian Jones from the University of Texas at Austin, professor of political science. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us today and and for your analysis and insights on uh, some of this transition that's happening in the federal government.
1: It's a pleasure. Eric. I've enjoyed it quite a bit. Thank you so much
0: for asking. Thank you. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with more On Politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we are certainly grateful to Dr. Brian Jones for joining us and talking about the process of power sharing, uh, the aspects of that, of, of power in the Senate and how that's used uh, to move things forward. And following that interview, as, as many of you know, we are live to tape. And so we prepare this in advance of the airing on Sunday, uh, but on uh, Thursday or Friday morning, I should say, uh, we saw this in uh, applied. We saw this come to reality in terms of how the Democrats uh, moved ahead with the COVID relief package uh, in the Senate. And that was through using uh, this process of reconciliation. Uh, as we know, President Joe Biden met with Senate Republican leaders earlier in the week uh, to try to find some middle ground or at least start those conversations. Uh, it doesn't appear that in what happened this morning with a um, uh, you know a, a vote along party lines that any progress was made on that point, uh, because the vote, the reconciliation vote, uh, was along party lines and did then begin to start moving this forward. Now we went into some explanation with Dr. Jones about reconciliation, uh, its history and background and, and how that this works. And I, I wanted to give it just a little more attention since we have this very, uh, uh, immediate example that gets this process started. Uh, because as we talked about with Dr. Jones, it was, uh, the it's focused on on budget it's focused on on spending and allocating resources and that is a, a- a means, a tool uh, that can be used in the Senate in order to facilitate uh, things like this and getting it it started and moving forward. And it can be used along partisan lines. Uh, What it does is it removes the potential for a filibuster uh, in which that it controls the amount of time that's given to debate uh, over this issue. There's some other unique features to it as well, Uh, but but for the moment here, I just wanted to emphasize uh, how significant this is and and really how this works in terms of a party being able Uh, 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 those affiliated with a particular party and voting along partisan lines. It's, it really is about the power and who controls. I mean, this is the political aspect of it. This is what we focus on on the show. Many times is not just explaining, you know, talking about, well, this is how something works, or maybe this is the way it should work or the way we think it works. We try to bring in a a more in-depth understanding of the role that politics has in this. And this is a direct application of politics here where you have Democrats. Democrats gaining control of the Senate due to that January 5th election and now being in the driver's seat, having won the presidential election, having the vice president there, then to add that tie-breaking vote when needed, this gives Democrats really the upper hand uh, in moving something forward. And we also know, as we talked about the timing as well, there's a limited amount of time here as we start to then look ahead to the midterm elections in a, uh, the ability of the Biden administration and a democratically controlled Congress to be able to move things forward and, and to get some things done. So, of course, this was over the $1.9 trillion coronavirus or proposed relief plan. It's, it's not in place. Okay, We have to understand this. The process is just starting, but it, it's not currently law. It's not spending, but this really begins to pave the way forward to do that. Uh, so the budget aspect of this which is what is the tie to reconciliation uh, is very very critical and what uh, some of the aspects of this that are that are extraordinary spending that, Congress is looking to do uh, involves an, an increase of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And I don't know if I have time to get back to that one, but that's one that may not make it through the reconciliation process. There, there are rules, there are boundaries that uh, have to be observed uh, in this process. And, and some are saying that the uh, proposed increase in minimum wage may be outside of those boundaries. But there's also an additional four hundred. dollars Dollars per week in federal unemployment benefits through September. So that's extending that extensively uh, throughout, including the direct payments, the, the the money that would go to people uh, based on their income level uh, that would help. So this is going to start moving forward now uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Senate and in this process of proposal in Congress. We know the House is firmly controlled by Democrats, so they have a majority vote. Reconciliation here means that they only need a majority vote or split vote with the vice president uh, being the tiebreaker uh, in order to move this forward. So just a couple of things, too, to understand about reconciliation that may uh, help us. Uh, in these uh, in the weeks ahead, as this really begins to move forward, it's going to move forward uh, very quickly. And as we when we had our conversation uh, with Dr. Jones, we know that this started back in 1974. It was used the first time under uh, Ronald Reagan. And since that time, there have been twenty five uh, reconciliation uh, bills. So this process of reconciliation starts with a budget resolution, and that's what is uh, passed, which includes the special rules and procedures uh, for this. Uh, since the, Now, what's unique with this is that Congress in 2020 did not pass a budget. So there, there is no budget in place. We only have uh, budget resolutions that have extended spending in uh, particular areas, or really across government. So, it, so it means that Democrats have the chance to attach reconciliation instructions to a 2020 budget. Okay, so they they have the opportunity now to go back, uh, address the 2020 budget, and attach reconciliation instructions to it they also will have a chance for the 2021 20, uh, budget uh, if they can have agreement on what those uh, budgets uh, should include. So once that agreement is done by simple majorities in the House and Senate uh, then the the debate begins and there's a time limit on debate in the Senate uh, no filibuster. They can't just do it until the clock runs out. Uh, The uh, debate on reconciliation begins. And uh, again, as we've said, it has to be about government spending. It has to be focused on that. Now, some of the unique features of reconciliation include that Uh, These budget bills allow for senators to make as many amendments as they want uh, or to propose as many. So they have to vote those uh, for or against to add those amendments. And and really, the voting just goes on in this manner until uh, they run out of amendments. Uh, There's no others to be proposed. But there are boundaries for those amendments uh, and, and, and for reconciliation. A reconciliation bills have to be confined to changing spending and revenue, as we've already said. Uh, but amendments or resolutions uh, have can cannot consist of the following: it, it can't be a, a resolution or a bill that has no budgetary impact. It has to have some impact on the current budget. It is it cannot be outside of the jurisdiction uh, of the committee that wrote. Uh, the original resolution. Uh, it can't just have minimal or incidental budgetary in- impact. It has to have significant impact. Again, this is a, a tool uh, that that parties in power have used in order to get agenda items through. And as we talked about, it's not focused on policy reform. It's not focused on going back and addressing. Uh, things and trying to change policy and, and review it and uh, have that kind of input to make it work better. It is more about spending connected to initiatives and agenda items of a, a, a particular administration or party uh, that's in control in Congress. Uh, the the uh, resolution cannot increase deficits uh, outside of a window of time specified in the budget resolution, okay, so that has to be in in that as well. Uh, in terms of identifying where these uh, deficits will fall, and then you they cannot propose a resolution that would change Social Security. So these are, are rules that are in place already related to the budget or the reconciliation process and the law that that guides that. Uh, and and so it just. Uh, We're going to see this moving forward. We're going to see uh, uh, Democrats in both chambers start to move things forward here uh, in a very rapid way in order to get this in place. One, uh, in terms of... getting COVID relief, getting the President Biden's plan for COVID relief related to the economy, related to public health, related to uh, specific uh, issues and supporting those that have been impacted by this. But remember, these things have lasting effect. And this is another political aspect of it, just as the Democrats are using this now, just so Republicans will do the same. And we'll see this uh, in in this process, we're going to see Republicans crying foul about not having a filibuster, uh, trying to push this through and so forth, we're, we'll, we would see the same thing if, it, if the roles were reversed, if Republicans were in fully control of Congress and they were using this. The other side of this too is that based on this initial vote to move that process forward, it would seem that the, the Democrats, all 50 Democrats and independents are, are in agreement, at least in getting this started. Now, this is where it becomes very challenging because they can't afford to lose a vote. So that means that votes uh, along lines like Joe Manchin, uh, who uh, uh, has concerns about some things in this, these more uh, moderate Democrats who, uh, uh, sometimes are the swing votes, uh, and will be in this as well. Uh, they're, they're going to have a lot of, of Input. They're going to be very involved in this process because the Democrats are going to need all 50 of those votes uh, if they're not able to attract any Republicans to make this more bipartisan. And given the numbers we've seen where Republicans are proposing a COVID relief package that is about one third of what Democrats are proposing at the moment, I don't see that we'll see very many Republicans, uh, if uh, really any, coming across the aisle to vote with Democrats uh, on a relief package, unless in the compromise, it it brings the numbers down considerably. And that's, those are the dynamics that we're going to have to watch. What are Democrats asking for, especially those more moderate uh, who may be on the fence about this particular proposal uh, and how that impacts the process going forward and whether that attracts uh, any uh, from the Republican side as well. So a very interesting process, something that we need to be familiar with more in depth to know how the Senate works, how Congress works, how these agenda items in terms of spending, there are serious concerns about really how how healthy this is in terms of the way we govern ourselves. Those are more long-term concerns, as you heard uh, expressed, in terms of what political scientists and, and, and policy researchers look at. But it is a mechanism that's in place, and it's one that does give a party in power the opportunity to move things forward uh, and to try to accomplish uh, some of the uh, uh, goals of their agenda. In the last part of the show here, I want to turn just briefly uh, to an update from the Texas legislature. Uh, and that is the announcement this past week that came out uh, that House Speaker Dade uh, Day, um, uh, Phelan uh, uh, announced the committees uh, for the 87th legislature. As Speaker of the House, we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, has that authority uh, to appoint the chairs, the vice chairs, uh, and some of the members of each committee of the Texas House of Representatives. And so Uh, The speaker uh, did announce this this last week. There were some interesting changes uh, in this. And there's a couple of things I just wanted to point out to bring to your attention. And I'll be posting uh, a good Texas Tribune article on this on our Facebook page that's on politics uh, with Eric Morrow. And that is that he gave Democrats one additional chair. uh, uh, One of those is Democrat Harold Dutton. uh, Will now chair from Houston. Will now chair the public education uh, committee. Uh, Dutton was uh, chosen for this, uh, and this choice is notable as he has supported the growth of charter schools, which is more of a uh, agenda item of Republicans. Um, and the focus here on forming schools outside of traditional public schools. So he's not fully in agreement with most Democrats in the legislature on this issue, uh, but this may have helped in supporting his nomination uh, or his selection to uh, chair this committee. Another interesting one is the house redistricting committee state representative, Todd Hunter is the new chairman. He's from Corpus Christi and Hunter uh, replaces representative Phil King from Weatherford. Uh, this will become critical later on in the year as we spoke with Cal Jilson last week, and we talked about redistricting and how we're waiting on the census data that's probably not going to be available until late in the legislative session, and thus there will need to be a special session uh, this summer Uh, to tackle the redistricting process, which will set the maps uh, for the state of Texas, for the U.S. Congress, uh, and and for the state legislature uh, for the next uh, decade. Um, Another significant uh, committee appointment includes uh, Representative Briscoe Kane, a Republican from Deer Park. He's also a member of the Conservative Freedom Caucus, uh, who will now chair the House Elections Committee. And so we can anticipate some legislation here that will focus on election uh, law and process in Texas. Uh, some of this coming out of a, uh, uh, movements nationwide that over concerns over the last election, uh, especially in the way that Uh, uh, different options were applied related to COVID. Uh, This is going to be an ongoing debate, I think, between now and the next presidential election, just as we saw after the 2000 election, a lot go into discussing the voting process, voting machines, and so forth. Another member of the Freedom Caucus, Representative Matt Krause of Fort Worth, uh, will now chair the General Investigating uh, Committee. Uh, and, and, And... And thus, you know, another uh, appointment that represents that that kind of more conservative side uh, of the Republican Party and the state legislature. Uh, I think what we see uh, in this legislature, though, if we look through all of the appointments, uh, is a a significant amount of diversity. And we've seen this continue to increase with each legislative uh, session that are as our legislature becomes more diverse in Texas. uh, This is certainly reflected in the committee appointments that have been made by the speaker of uh, five uh, committee chairs and 14 vice chairs uh, are women uh, so that uh, increases a significant role there and 14 chairs and 21 vice chairs are either black hispanic or uh, asian american uh, and uh, as i said democrats this session have one more chair so we've got pol- political diversity we've got uh, racial ethnic diversity we've got gender diversity uh, you know, these things are, are representative, I think, of the change of the state. And, and we follow this in my classes, uh, uh, looking um, uh, back on how this has changed. Certainly, it's behind the percentages in the diversity of the state uh, in terms of the number of Hispanics and leadership roles, African-Americans and, uh, uh, and Asian-Americans. But uh, it is changing and it's, it's changing over time to where we are beginning to see, especially the House of Representatives, uh, more, uh, representative of the diversity of our population as a whole, uh, across the state. Uh, this is in a legislature where the division between Republicans and Democrats, 83 to 67, uh, has, did not change, uh, from the last, uh, legislative session. Uh, so, It's interesting to follow this. I'll post uh, this article, as I said, on our Facebook page so that you can look more in depth at this. Now we will begin to see in the legislature that process moving forward uh, to uh, bills being referred to committees to see what legislation uh, will be moving to House and Senate and possibly on to the governor. Thank you for joining us today on Politics. Join us right here on KTRL 90.5 FM each Sunday at noon on TarletonRadio.com and after the show on SoundCloud or where you download your podcast and look us up on Facebook. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow for interesting and related reads for each week's show. Thank you again and we will see you next week. radio network podcast with production from me taylor welch and me carissa cole find more great shows by
1: searching "Charlton radio network wherever you get your podcasts